Thank you, buddy. Great job. Take your Bibles. Turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20 and verse number 17. Let's face it, we live in a world that is ambition-driven. Life is all about winning and losing. That's why we keep score in sports. But ambition has been become something of a dirty word in our day because to many people it implies an overwhelming desire for personal advancement without regard of its cost or who does hurt in the process. Yet ambition itself is not evil. If you don't have any ambition, you don't get out of bed in the morning. You don't accomplish thing, anything in your life. Ambition is just a strong desire regarding the future. And as such, it can be either positive or negative, good or bad. In fact, it can be very useful if one's ambition is for the right things. It is a good thing to aspire to be the best that we can possibly be. As long as it fits into the context of serving God and others. The events recorded in today's text occur near the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. In fact, it takes place just about a week before the crucifixion. As Jesus and his disciples are making their way into Jerusalem. And so I want you to note with me four things from our text this morning. First of all, the solemn reminder. Now Jesus shares with his disciples here in more detail than ever what is awaiting them in Jerusalem. This is the third time in which he has shared such a prediction. We saw it in chapter 16 and verse 21 and again in chapter 17 and verse 22. There is a progressive revelation each time that he shares with his disciples. He shares more details. Beginning in verse 17, we read, And now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that is, he is speaking about himself, will be betrayed to the chief priest and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. Now over the course of the next few days, Jesus is going to challenge the religious leadership. He's going to again cleanse the temple for the second time. And in anger, the religious leadership try to trap Jesus into saying something that will turn the crowd against him or something that they can use against him with the Roman authorities. Finally, when everything else fails, they decide to arrest him, wrongly convict him, condemn him, and put him to death. Now, Jesus knew. He knew that he was going to Jerusalem to die because it was a part of God's plan. From the midpoint of Jesus' ministry, Luke tells us that Jesus had set his face to go to Jerusalem. 
Rather than being dissuaded by this, however, he is more determined than ever to fulfill his Father's will. So now Matthew says that Jesus took the twelve disciples aside to tell them about the betrayal, the condemnation, the abuse, and his death. The second thing we see is a shocking request in verse number 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And said, he said to her, What do you wish? And she said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your kingdom. Now, Zebedee's sons are James and John. Their mother is probably Salome. Salome is the sister of Jesus' mother. And if you want to figure that all out, you have to go uh, to the end of the gospel accounts and compare Matthew and Mark and John as the women who are gathered around the cross. But if this is true, then Salome would be Jesus' aunt, and John and James would be his cousins. So there is the possibility, at least, that Salome is coming to Jesus seeking preferential treatment for her sons on the basis of her relationship with Jesus. So she kneels humbly before Jesus, and with great respect she asks that her two sons be given seats of the highest honor in his coming kingdom. It is a audacious request, but it is also a believer's request. While it's easy to find fault with her and what she did, at least she did it from a platform of faith. She did believe that Jesus was one day coming into a kingdom of his own. He may not have looked like a king to the undiscriminating eye, but she, through faith, saw that one day he would indeed rule the earth. It must also be admitted that she may have succumbed to a danger that all of us as parents face. And that is wanting our children to fulfill our dreams for them rather than God's dreams for them. There's a third thing, and that is the swift reproof. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, We are able. Jesus asked them if they thought that they could drink the cup that he was going to drink of. The term cup is a very common phrase in the Old Testament. It was an expression that indicated judgment and suffering. You remember that in the Garden of Gethsemane, just the contemplation of drinking, draining that cup of anguish and sorrow brought beads of blood to the brow of Jesus. The task was so daunting that Jesus himself twice asked if that cup could be passed by. 
even the Lord himself hesitated to drink the cup of God's wrath when he faced the cross. So he asked John and James if they thought they could drink of that cup. You know, sometimes our perspective gets a little skewed, gets out of whack, and we forget our limitations. Muhammad Ali was on a plane at the height of his fame, and the stewardess asked him to buckle his seatbelt. He replied, Superman don't need no seatbelt. She looked at him and quickly answered, Superman don't need no airplane either. <laughs> Everybody wants to be somebody, and sometimes we get to the point that we really believe that we are somebody. But John and James are very confident in their reply. We are able. They underestimated the cost of following Christ, and they overestimated their own strength and ability. They did not even hesitate to think it over or to contemplate the implications. So it is no surprise that when the soldiers came to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus, they ran away in order not to drink of that cup. But Jesus responded to them by saying, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. And later, they did drink of that cup. According to Acts chapter 12, James was the first of the twelve disciples to die for his faith. Herod Agrippa arrested him and had a Roman soldier behead him. John, his brother, was called upon to sip the cup of suffering much more slowly. His first sip was in Acts chapter 5 when he was beaten for preaching Jesus. Tradition tells us that the Roman, the Roman emperor Diomitian had him thrown into a boiling pot of oil, but he didn't die. He was later exiled to a prison on a small island called Patmos. And it was there he received the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is the last book in our Bible. I think this is a classic illustration of be careful what you ask for, you might just get it. Jesus does not deny that he has a coming kingdom or that there will be seats of honor. What Jesus says in the last part of verse 23 is, but to sit on my right hand or on my left is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. The great, the great expositor John Phillips puts it this way. There is a place to be filled at the Lord's side in the crowning day that is coming. But the right to that place is not his to give. It has to be earned Although God gives unmerited salvation, he never gives unmerited reward. That really struck me when I read that. God gives unmerited salvation, but he never gives unmerited reward. And the reality of that really ought to grip our souls. There's a final point this morning, and that is the servant redeemer. 
You'll remember that in chapter 18, the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest in Christ's kingdom. And that Jesus responded by taking a little child out of the crowd and bringing it in the middle of them and saying the one who would be the greatest needs to humble himself as a child. Now this is an often repeated problem with the disciples and so it really should be no surprise to find the disciples still arguing over who is going to be ahead of who. The first thing I want you to see is the anger of the disciples in verse 24. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. Now, the anger of the other disciples is probably indicative of their own aspirations. They were not appalled by James and John's lack of understanding of servanthood. They were mad that they got to Jesus first. They were angry because James and John had thought of it first, and perhaps they might have been also angry because they thought that John and James had used family connections as leverage with Jesus. Now think about this for a moment, folks. Jesus is literally on his way to the cross to give his life in self-sacrificing love, yet there is jealousy and envy and selfishness rising up from those who are the very closest to him. Secondly, a standard of servant leadership. Knowing that his disciples were angry and resentful, he called them together and he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who are great exercise authority over them before things got out of hand he called them together and he began to teach them the difference between the world standard of greatness and God's standard of greatness this is the way the world is but this is not the way the kingdom will be Jesus very kindly but very directly lets the disciples know that their ambitions are just like the unbelieving world And then with four words, Jesus says that the way of the kingdom is different. Not so with you. Verse 26, he says, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Yet it shall not be among you. That is a stinging rebuke in the manner in which our modern church looks to the world for its substance and for its style. Plainly, the church is not intended to operate the way the world does. Jesus points out that according to the world, greatness means exercising authority. It means being in power. It means having people answerable to you. To the world, greatness is a corner office with a view. It means having a team of subordinates who will answer to you every whelm. It means dozens of people who, do not, who listen to everything you say, cling to your every decision, and inwardly wish they were in your position. It means having the biggest house, the sportiest car, the smartest kids, and the best schools. 
and everything, every advantage that life has to offer. The world says that greatness means doing whatever you have to do to whomever you have to do it in order to claw your way to the top and stay on top. We see this perpetuated in television shows like The Apprentice where the young up-and-coming junior executives get to try to outdo each other in corporate backstabbing. But the truth is the world's standard of greatness or success only leads to emptiness. One of the most common things we hear from those who have reached the pinnacle of success is that of the emptiness that stalks their lives, all their successes notwithstanding. That sort of confession is at least one reason the question of meaning is so central in life's pursuit. Although none like to admit it, what brings purpose in life for many, particularly like countries of our own who are rich in opportunities, what it is and what it becomes is a higher standard of living. Yet judging by the remarks of some who have attained those highest standards, there is a frequently an admission of disappointment. Jesus used two words to describe greatness and what it was all about. First, he said in verse 26, Whoever wants to be among you must first be a servant. The word servant here in the Greek is the word diagonos. It is the word that we get deacon from. It means servant. The world says that greatness is found in being served. And Jesus says that greatness is found in serving others. In verse 27, he uses the second key word. He says that whoever will be great, whoever will be first, must become a slave. It is a word that means a person whose sole interest is in accomplishing the will of the person he serves. Even at the last meal that he shared with his disciples, it became clear that they didn't understand what it meant to be a servant. You find the story in John chapter 13. We see Jesus and his disciples sharing a Passover meal. Then according to verse 4 of chapter, John chapter 13, it says, And he rose from the supper, and he laid aside his garments, and he took a towel and girded himself, and after that he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. And then Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And that day the people had to travel by foot. They traveled by foot over very dusty roads. Their feet would have been very dirty by the time they arrived at their destination. So the normal practice was for the host to have a servant or a slave at the door. 
His job would have been to wash the feet of each guest and dry them as they arrive. It was a disagreeable job, but it had to be done, especially if the guests were going to enjoy their meal and the fellowship afterwards. You say, well, how does having dirty feet affect that? Well, let me refresh your memory. Don't forget they didn't sit around tables like we do. They reclined around a table. Each person's head would be at the feet of the person next to them. Hey, if you're going to be there and your feet are going to be next to my head, I want them to be clean, don't you? All the disciples knew that their feet were dirty. And they needed to be washed before the meal. But none of them was prepared to do that. They all thought that, this, that they were too important to perform such a lowly task. Charles Swindoll says the room was filled with proud hearts and dirty feet. The disciples were willing to fight for a throne, but not for a towel. After waiting for some time and seeing that there were no one else was going to make an effort to wash their feet, Jesus took off his outer cloak he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Peter really didn't like it that Jesus, as the guest of honor, was doing this menial task. Have you ever wondered why Peter was so upset about this? Why Peter was upset that Jesus was washing their feet? Was it just that he thought that Jesus was demeaning himself? I think at least part of it was because Peter knew that it was his responsibility. His responsibility. Washing feet was the job of the lowest of slaves. But Jesus did not believe that doing so in any way diminished his power or his authority. D.L. Moody said something once that I think we ought to keep in our minds. We can easily be too big for God to use but never too small. The last thing is the supreme example in verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The supreme example of service was that of Christ giving his life as a ransom for many. You know, the image of ransom really doesn't carry the same force in our minds today as it did for the disciples of Jesus. War was a very common occurrence for the countrymen of Jesus' day. And in times of war, the ransoming of prisoners was occurring almost continually. Prisoners were released upon the payment by themselves or their family of a sum of money. Jesus offered his own ministry as an example of what true servanthood should be like. His entire purpose was shaped by his decision to serve, and his final supreme act of service was the giving of his life on the cross, the ransom or redemption, because the terms are interchangeable. The ransom for our slavery to sin was the perfect and pure life of Jesus. Peter, much later in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, wrote this. It was not with perishable things such as 
silver and gold that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The virtue of his costly service was extended to everyone. When he says that it was a ransom for many, many is emphasizing the contrast between the single death and the wide extent of its benefits. One life as ransom for many. Let me close by saying it was, it was stated that Dave Thomas, the, the founder of the Wendy's hamburger chain, once appeared on the cover of their annual report, dressed in a knee-length work apron, holding a mop and a plastic bucket. Here's how he described that photo. He said, I got my MBA long before my GED. At Wendy's, MBA does not mean Master of Business Administration. It means mop bucket attitude. Jesus is still looking for individuals who will follow his example and adopt a basin theology and a mop bucket attitude. You know, it's easy to talk about service as long as we talk in the abstract. It's easy about talking about wanting to serve while we keep right on taking care of ourselves and our interests. So let's be concrete. If a job needs doing and we are able, we should do it. Christians sometimes hide behind their theology. We turn to talking about giftedness. If there's a job that we think is too humble for us, like nursery or cleaning up in the kitchen, we say, that's not my gift. But Jesus said, he who would be greatest shall be the servant of all. Let's pray. Father, we're among the first to admit that it is easier to talk about service than it is actually to buck up and do the service. That sometimes we become proud too. We think some act, some job is beneath us. Help us always keep in our minds the attitude of Jesus that he knew that nothing he did, no job that he, in which he served demeaned his authority or his power. Father, I pray that we'd be able to serve you above and beyond all things. I pray that we would have our ambition in the right things. That it's okay for us to have ambition to, to get ahead in the world, to, to be a success. But we want to be a success for you. We want to be a success in those things that you want us successful in. But Lord, I pray you give us your guidance and direction. Oh, there may be one here today that doesn't know you as a personal Lord and Savior. They obviously then can't give themselves to service to you until they first give themselves to you. And Father, if there's one here today that doesn't know you in a personal, intimate way, I pray that they might come to know you today. I pray they might realize right here, right now, that they can, in repentance and faith, turn and accept you as their Lord and Savior. 
Repentance, recognizing that they are sinners. Sinners just like all the rest of us. And faith, faith that your death on the cross paid the penalty for their sin. And pray and ask that they might receive that free gift of salvation. There are others that may need to make decisions about service. There are others that may need to make decisions about church membership. But Lord, whatever it is that you want us to do, I pray that this be the time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you?